0: When I was in my freshman year in college I sat down with a little black and white composition notebook and I wrote a question what can I do that does the most for the most people that I'd be good at and I started scribbling and writing and thinking and and I wrote not what do I want what do I like I wrote what can I do that does the most for others that I'd be good at Uh, so you have to have the proper question first I think the biggest thing is to get yourself out of the question, like, what not what do you like. If you find something you can do for other people, you will learn to love it.
1: Welcome to the 100 CEO Project podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are stepping into the world of farming here at the 100 CEO Project, fish farming to be precise, With us is John Reed, CEO of Waterfield Farms, which produces organic tilapia and giant shrimp, along with herbs and vegetables in an integrated ecosystem, which I'm going to let him explain to you in more detail very shortly. But first, John, welcome to the show.
0: Hi there, hello, fun to be here.
1: So your entire business model is focused on sustainability. And so we're excited to hear about what you've created. But first, can you share with us a little bit about the current market conditions for fish and seafood and give us an understanding of why Waterfield Farms is such a critical venture at this point in time?
0: Okay, well, that's a a lot, but simply uh, start off with a few statistics that the United States imports about 85% of all of its seafood. We have the largest area of coastline in the world, and yet we import huge amounts of fish. So just right off the bat, we need to grow fish. We have immense uh, agricultural resources, but we're importing. So to grow fish for the US makes tremendous sense. Uh, We then chose to grow uh, the the species that are the most profitable, but also the lowest cost fish in the market. And our our key goal is to produce not just organic, regenerative food, but low cost food uh, to serve the market. Um, that most people you know love seafood but often it's become priced out of the market for most people so we're about bringing the price back down to make seafood affordable again you know also the 20s and 30s seafood was considered a poor man's protein but then uh, people discovered it oh wow and they started eating lots and lots of it the price went through the roof because there's not enough of it in the oceans and the oceans is another part about what we were very committed to is that Um, we're really outstripping the capacity of the oceans to produce enough fish. So we're, most fisheries are overfished or in some cases they're collapsing. So growing fish on land became a great way to uh, feed the country, but also uh, not strip out the very dwindling fisheries resources around the planet. So I can go on, but I'll, I'll pause there.
1: Last time we spoke, you talked about some silver linings for your business in 2020. So can you share a little bit about that?
0: Well, um, a few things. One, um, we, our primary market has been supermarkets, not restaurants and whatnot, uh, because it's just, we had to pick a market and supermarkets are a better low cost option for us to sell into. Um, but it turns out that during recessions, uh, people tend to eat, uh, they go out less. And in this case, they can't go out at all. Uh, so supermarket sales always go up during uh, recessions. And during a normal recession, when you're not just limited to have to staying in your house like we are now, um, instead of you know going out and treating yourself Friday or Saturday night to a fancy dinner people will, will go and buy upscale a little bit in the supermarket and buy a little bit more of it, fancy something and cook it at home for their family. So supermarket sales always go up during recessions and and other times and particularly in the pandemic. So that has been a small silver lining but a different one has become really people have started to understand the importance of food resiliency. You know, people are panic buying and rushing foods are going to run out. And that often is because the food chain in this country is, is super, super long. You know, most food comes from two to three thousand miles away from where it's eaten. Uh, in short cases, it's as short as a thousand miles, but still very far away. So there's a lot of opportunity for interruption in that supply chain. So growing food locally, sustainably, resiliency, that has been something people have started to really get in a very visceral sense now. As opposed to it's maybe an intellectual concept but now it's really come home and there's a lot more of a understanding and a, and a desire for for local food and the market is uh more acceptable is more sort of open to that now as well so there's several silver linings unfortunately to, to the pandemic
1: you had some things going on with your business as well correct um to do with uh building new facilities
0: well yes we're, we're expanding uh, two operations one is we So a little bit about what we do, we grow fish in large tanks of water and then the water from those fish tanks uh, uh, is circulated through shrimp tanks and the water from there goes through plants. And basically the uneaten feed from the fish is fed to the shrimp and the shrimp uh, manure and the fish manure is fed to the plants. The plants clean the water and is returned back again. So it's a recirculating system, 100% recirculation. So we do that and we ran a facility in Amherst, Mass for, for 20 years. Shipping to about 650 supermarkets all across the Northeast, uh, but we had to shut down because of loss of the lease of land and a bunch of challenges. So we're restarting an operation in Albany, New York. I'm pointing because right now Albany's that way, <laughs> but in any case, um, so Albany, New York, and um, so we're working with investors to raise the funds to expand, and that this this time has really helped investors see what uh, the importance of what we're about—food resiliency—and in the later point, I'll bring up about carbon sequestration and reversing climate change was another thing we're very committed to. I'll explain a bit more about that later, but relative to our fundraising. And and secondly, there's a hatchery in Florida that we are in the midst of purchasing. And that is uh, very important for us because the the, the genetics of the fish we grow. A lot of people are focusing on growing much more expensive fish to sell into the higher premium market, which is a good business model, you know, growing salmon and high-end fish where you can get a lot of money per pound. But our approach is exactly the opposite growing as cheap a fish as we can, as inexpensively as we can, and sell a lot more fish at a lower price. But that means we need to work on growing fish that, that, that grow faster on a lower quality feeds, lower protein diets, not sort of feeding them super high test feeds um, that cost a, lot, cost a lot of money. So having a hatchery where we can breed the, the stock that we use and then a facility to grow out that stock. And our, our mission is not just to grow just in upstate New York. It's really to replicate our systems uh, outside of each major market. And an interesting distinction is we don't want to be in the market because a lot of people say they want to grow in the city. And that's really quite, quite nice. But when you think about how do you distribute inside the city? I, mean, I have some friends that run a, some container farms in Brooklyn, and they literally get on the subway to deliver their product, which is kind of innovative in some regards. But at the same time, they can't move volume. Now, a lot of farms who have built in the city, they wind up shipping their product in big trucks out of the city to the distribution centers, to the distribution centers, which surround most cities. And then those trucks take it back into all the city markets. So we build outside the city on the edge at the distribution center so we can immediately ship directly into the, into the markets. And one of our key uh, <coughs> traits is we call same day fresh. So we, we pick, pack and harvest by 10 in the morning. It's on our trucks. Into the supermarket distribution centers by around 12 to one o'clock and then it they call it distro it distributes out to the stores your local supermarket store by around three or four so you can come home uh, from work five or six and buy what was growing in our greenhouses the same day so that being close allows us to do that same day delivery cycle if we're too far away then we can't do it it's just not possible physically so our our program is to replicate systems outside of major cities where there's a big enough market to serve the the large facilities that we build. So that's another aspect of when you mention what we're we're building out and what we're developing.
1: So you were calling this grass-fed fish and you wanted wanted to talk about the carbon sequestration issue, which I think is really really interesting. Um, Can you tell us about
0: that? Yeah, let me throw in a, a word before that called multitrophic. So what we do is, what that means is feeding on many different energy levels uh, inside an ecosystem. So what we do is we feed the fish, which are sort of our apex fish, and then the waste stream that falls down from that, we then recycle. There's a great saying of don't waste the waste, because that's really important. Uh, If you look at, um, when you feed a fish, uh, about 20 to 25% of what you feed the fish becomes fish, and 75% is lost as fish manure, which you might think is pretty bad, Bad, but tell you look at chicken, which about 15% of what you feed a chicken becomes chicken, and all the rest is lost as manure. Or for cattle, on a good day, it's 2% of what you feed a cow becomes cow, and that's sort of the foundation why some people have such a, a beef with uh, with growing with growing livestock is that they don't convert their resources uh, very efficiently. So if what we do is we eat fish already at 25%. That's one of the best conversions in the industry. Um, but what we then do is we feed the leftover feed from our fish to the shrimp. They consume about another 20%. And that goes on to the, to the plants and that consumes about another 10%. So we have about a 55% conversion of our feed into saleable product. And that's what gives us uh, such great margins as a business and what allows us to sell product at a very low cost. Cause we're, we're fully utilizing all of the value. Sort of like if you buy a bottle of wine and you pour out three quarters of it before you drink it, <laughs> It would, be, it would be nuts. But that's what most, what's most uh, protein producers do. So we're really shifting that. And there's more species we can add into that mix. And time will be adding in freshwater mussels. And that'll get us to about a 70% utilization of our diet. So that's the, the, pre, the pre-ramble, as I like to say, uh, for the feed that we give Then So we use feed very, very efficiently. But the feed itself, we started off, <clears throat> most fish feed contains a lot of fish in it, surprisingly many people, some people know that fish meal, little baby fish are, are caught ground up and mixed with grains and then fed to high protein eating species like salmon and bass and things like that, um, <clears throat> which grows fish really well, but it's pretty horrible for the ocean fisheries because we're catching all these little baby fish that need to be in that ocean. You know, we've eaten all the big fish. So now we're, and, and they, to recover those fish need to have the feeder fish to eat. But if we catch all those little fish to make fish meal, the oceans can't, the stocks can't recover. So, um, so that's pretty bad ecologically for the oceans. But also a lot of those fish <clears throat> are at the bottom of the food chain. They eat a lot of toxins, whether it be polluted algaes, grasses, things like that. And that becomes a vector for contamination into our system. So cutting fish meal out of our diet is very important for ecologically helping to preserve the oceans, but also not to allow contaminants into our organic system. Uh, So so first we cut out fish meal, we had an all grain-based diet. And we thought we were quite proud of ourselves, this is great, and we did did well with this for a few years. But then we realized grains are almost as destructive in terms of destroying our topsoil, and a whole lot of other resources, carbon emissions, uh, as using fish meal. So we really started searching, how do we cut grains out of our operation? And we came up with the ideas of using grasses, to blend with our grains. And we have a thing called a grass-based diet, or we call grass-fed fish to to play on the the slogan I'm sure you've all heard of. So, um, So yeah, so that became a real focus for us. And that was, again, to create a sustainable issue, particularly relative to the destruction grains create. I mean, grains are wonderful for us to eat, but we shouldn't be feeding them to animals. And the reason being is that we have a very grave topsoil crisis in the world, by different accounts, we have 75 to <clears throat> to maybe 100 years of topsoil left, and we're out of soil. Like no soil, no food, no 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 us. <laughs> so it's a pretty big problem. So grasses, because they're grow- they're cut and they grow again. We're not turning over the soil. They allow the s- soil to grow back and, and recover, and so we're rebuilding topsoil by growing grasses. So the more grasses we can put into our diet, the less grains the more we are regenerating our topsoil. So a huge, a huge issue there. But then it came to realize, you know, what, is, what is soil? When you, sort of, when you regrow topsoil, what is that? What's it, where's it coming from? And we were like, well, of course, it's carbon from the atmosphere. And then we started doing a bit of math and sort of discovered that we're sequestering huge amounts of carbon in the process. So for every acre of grass that we grow, we can sequester anywhere from a ton to two tons of carbon per acre per year into the topsoil, and that's what the rebuilt topsoil is, the CO2 and other things too, but a lot of CO2 gets built into that topsoil. So we came to realize that grass production is one of the single largest forms of carbon sequestration on the planet. And we then did a bit more math. If we would convert, and a little bit of another statistic, about 33% of all the grain that's grown on the planet is fed to animals. In the United States, it's about 70% of global grain is fed to our animals, our animal industry. But globally, that's 30, about 30%. If we were to convert just that portion of grain that's grown to feed animals to grasses to feed animals, and remember that we sequester a ton to two tons of carbon per acre per year. So we converted all those acres to grasses. We would suck enough carbon out of the atmosphere into new topsoil. We would reverse climate change in around 50 years. It seems to be the single biggest factor to reverse climate change, period. And that's controversial. <laughs> I'd love to get people to say, oh, no, 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 there's another way. But so far, and I put this to a lot of climate scientists, I've got a bunch of reports and papers we've written on this. So far, no one has, other than some of my bad spelling, has had any issues with how, how, what we've done, stoichiometrically, scientifically, et cetera. Now, of course, you might say, OK, how, how's the market? How do you get people? This grass stuff is so great. You know, and I've had some friends who are Iowan grain farmers and they say, I want to grow grass. I, want, I, I see my soil disappearing before my eyes. I know I can't give my farm to my kids because there's nothing to give. them no soil. They want to give them a rock farm, but there's, there's no farm left. <clears throat> so how do I convert? I can't just plant grass and grow it because who's going to buy it? So part of our mission is to develop the market for grass-based diets, first by using it ourselves, developing it ourselves. And we can afford to do it. In the beginning, sometimes our first diets, we've we've run grass diets for about 10 years in our previous facility in Amherst. In the beginning, it didn't grow as well. It was slower. It wasn't as efficient, but we worked on the recipe. We tuned it, and we got things growing just about as good, Uh, but we can afford, because our margin is so good, we can afford to, um, to experiment and still make money. We could even have a slightly less good growth rate and still make money. Um, with our grass diets. So we're developing the market, uh, creating the volume in feed mills, getting farmers to grow, uh, to supply those mills, and slowly building a market for ourselves because we have a decent volume of demand. But then uh, offer it to other aquaculture growers, other growers of tilapia, which is, I forget if I mentioned, well, you mentioned that we grow tilapia, um, which is the fourth most consumed fish in the United States. So it's a lot of demand for tilapia. So if we can convert the bulk of the tilapia industry to be using grass-based diets, we'll start to build a pretty good foundation. And then in time we look to convert the the recipes for poultry because about 60% of all the grains in the United States are fed to chicken. So it's a huge market, but chicken feed is really, really cheap. And it's actually easier to make a chicken diet because it's a lower protein than than what a fish needs, but cost-wise it's really hard to get it. That's why I say it's chicken feed, right? It's cheap stuff. So getting the diet. So that means we have to get our volume up, get really efficient in our production cycles, get the farmers efficient, tune all kinds of, of things. It's going to take us, you know, some years to get this worked out. But then we can start to get the volume up, get the acreages starting to convert to grasses. And then we ha- then we're off to the races. Then <clears throat> I say it'll take us about 20 years to get the volume of grass, the grass base up to the volume it needs to be at. Run that for another 30 years, and we can really Take the worst of the climate uh, impact out of the atmosphere. I can get into some CO2 numbers and things if that would be useful. I don't know how far you want me to get into the to the weeds here <laughs> to the grass weeds. <laughs> nice that pun. Um, <laughs> um,
1: well, that's interesting. I mean, it doesn't seem very exciting to grow grass, but I'm guessing that it it grows more easily than you know. I live in the middle of the country, and there's a lot of corn and soybean, and sure. you know, when if you're not having a very good year. Just seems like very complicated the farming industry. So if you can grow grass, sounds like it might be an easier thing to grow.
0: Well, it's much e- uh, easier in a sense. Obviously, you don't have to till, so you, don't, you you skip right off an initial bat. You don't have to seed, so right off the bat, you don't have that expense. It takes a lot less fertilizer and a lot less irrigation, uh, and it grow. It's much more tolerant to cold and to heat. So if you have a bad frost or a bad uh, drought. Or, or excess excess rain all of the above really hurts your corn or soy and other crop yields where grasses are much more resilient and as climate change comes on those types of, of really erratic weather is becoming more and more prevalent i mean we all see this now it was it was predicted 20 years ago it's a fact now that climate is very very impacted so grasses are much more resilient to this kind of change and even if we were to suck all the stop emitting all new carbon tomorrow. We were a carbon neutral planet. We're going to have 20, 30 years of impact that we've already created with our climate. It's going to take time to get things back to the winters that our grandparents knew rather than the winters we know now, where it's, you know, it's November and it's barely 20 degrees outside of where, where I am. So normally we'd be hard frost and, and, and snow on the ground. So this is, and and, you know, the lakes that you used to, to be able to ski across in November, Sometimes they're open water until January, uh, so um, so that's we, we're we're clear to that. So to your point about farmers, it it makes the resiliency of the farmer easier, and there are other challenges. There's markets we have to get the protein content up. There's challenges to working on that. Grasses grow it and a good at a good day about 17 percent protein, <clears throat> but um, most grains want to be around 25 to 30 percent protein. So there's some some tricks we're working on. Uh, to, to get those ratios to work right. And then we still can blend in some grains as well to, to adjust that. But to, to, your, to the point I was starting with about CO2, I'll give you a very simple thing that when, when our grandparents were, were, were living, CO2 in the atmosphere was around 280 parts per million. Just think of it as, as a number, as a reference point, 280. Uh, most people have said to stop the planet from heating more than two degrees of temperature rise. Uh, and we've already risen a degree so to stop that second degree of rise, we can't be above 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's a pretty recognized number. We got to not be above 350. Right now, we're at 412, actually 414. It keeps going up, <laughs> it changes on me in the numbers. Uh, <clears throat> so 414 um, parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere right now, that's obviously way above 350. So we are on track for about three degrees of climate change now. So even if we would become a carbon neutral culture, society, planet, we're already cooked. We've got to take carbon from the air out. We've got to go from 450 back to a minimum of 350. And that, that stops us at two degrees temperature rise. Uh, and gonna be a debate exactly. It's not going to be on the number, but you know, one. Th- 0.75, two and a quarter, but it gets us to a place where we're barely tolerable, two is, and by some people consider two is too high, and anyway. most people are trying to say we can't go above one and a half degrees of temperature rise, but we're on track for three with 414 parts of CO2 in the atmosphere, so this is why sequestration is such an important part, really, of our, of our lives, literally our lives depend on this, our children's lives especially, um, you know, Humans will probably exist, we'll get by somehow, right? But an awful lot of of, of humans will suffer. A lot will have to migrate, a lot will die trying. Our economies will be in tremendous risk. The Fed, the US Fed just issued a report three days ago that climate change is a material risk for our economy. And so when the Fed acknowledges climate change as an issue, you know something has finally gotten, they kind of said it's a risk factor, right? They're not saying, you know, alarm bells like some people are saying, but they're of course very staid, and how they present things. I don't want to freak people out, but even that got pe- that people sat up and paid attention. So, so how do we get this carbon out of the air? Well, one way is grasses, <clears throat> and there are lots of other. Now, of course, you say we take 33% of our soils and we start sequestering. That's with grasses, but the other 70%. There are many, many other techniques sh- other farmers can can grow. No-till agriculture is a big is a big factor. Many, many other ways to get organic matter into your soil. So. Pretty much if we can just get the world to stop putting new carbon in the atmosphere, agriculture can pretty much reverse climate change. If we get the grass production going and we get all the farmers to be a lot more responsible to always planting cover crops, never leaving bare soil, so many things It becomes a whole nother show about how that how that happens. But the simple part is get that carbon back in the ground, build back the topsoil, climate change becomes something we talk about that almost killed us <laughs> uh, in, in 30 years. But right now, it's, 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 it's gonna, if we don't stop. Because again, we're on track for three degrees. If we go to four or five degrees, that's you know, pretty much, that's an apocalypse. And, and no one really fully understands what's gonna happen, but it's, it's really not good. I mean, the bulk of the, of the culture and society we know today pretty much disappears. Something else will come in its place but it's likely not going to be nearly as abundant, or as great, even as it is now. We got a lot of problems in the world already with equity and poverty, and that just becomes massively exacerbated, and 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 we become part of the impoverished in the process. So I don't want to be too much uh, too gloomy about this, although it is pretty gloomy as well. It's hard to put a Good pers- everyone always likes the happy ending we're almost going to die but everyone always likes to put that but at the end but we can do this and we'll be saved uh so so there is that um you know there's a saying we're the first generation to feel the impacts of climate change but the last generation that can do something about it uh and that's that's very true but the good news is we do have a way so we're really focused on of course our core business is food for people but a second really, really important thing is how do we really kick off the markets to sequester carbon? And, and we're very committed to market forces. Um, you know, Market forces really made this mess in the first place. And markets themselves aren't necessarily bad. But we need to con- harness the market power and the power of consumerism. Because if, if every consumer, one of the things I'd love to do is get packaging that has a carbon content on each packet. So con- consumers often feel helpless, like, what can I do? I'm just on the, I'm in, in for the ride. There's nothing I can do about this. But if you could look on every pa- package and see what the carbon content is and you could buy as low as you could, consumers have some real power then in buying low carbon or carbon negative content product. When time, we can grow a carbon negative food. So we really believe in the power of consumers informing consumers and giving them the power to purchase uh, responsibly. And, and so between that and having but they can't do it now, it's not in the market. But so that's our mission to create that the power uh, of good, low cost food that also is sequestering carbon. And transforming, uh, transforming climate change, so we have have a real future. So there we go. There's uh, <laughs> there's some sort of light topic to uh, <laughs> to to think about.
1: So you've been in this business for over 30 years. What advice can you give to entrepreneurs or even seasoned companies on how to go about creating real change with their sustainable ventures, or even just how to be successful with bringing them to market, like you have?
0: So there's a, a lot to that I can start by saying when I was in my freshman year in college, I sat down with a little black and white composition notebook and I wrote a question that, what can I do that does the most for the most people that I'd be good at. And I started scribbling and writing and thinking and, and I wrote not what do I want what do I like I wrote what could I do that does the most for others that I'd be good at. Um, And this model came up very early on. I developed and I went on and built on the south side of one of the dorms of my college, a greenhouse started growing fish and plants in it. It was like, and so since 19 really 81, this I've been developing the system. So it came to me quickly, but it came quickly because I asked, I think a good question. Uh, So you have to have the proper question first. And I think the biggest thing is to get yourself out of the question, like not what do you like, what's fun for you, I can't find myself in the world. If you find something you can do for other people, you will learn to love it. Uh, And a great example was I was doing chemistry, physics, biology, all the undergraduate stuff. And I, this question came about and we had our wonderful little system running in this greenhouse on campus. And then I realized, okay, how does this actually make a difference in the world? And I switched my entire degree to economics. And if you talk to me, and now I'm, now I'm almost a senior, you know, when I was a, a freshman, w- I was gonna be an economics manager, you'd be like, you're yeah, right, <laughs> what they put in your, your soup at lunch. Uh, totally like, because where fun goes to die, right? That's the expression for economics, right? Uh, so not gonna be an economic, but now all of a sudden economics is fascinating because it gives me the access to how do I solve these questions? Because to a great degree, Economics is the study of ecosystems. So, so again, if I thought, what do I like? I never would have taken economics. Economics is horrible, right? Who wants to be an economist? Apologies to whoever are economists. But anyway, it becomes something that you become passionate about. So you find yourself passionate about things you would not have thought once you get yourself out of the way. Uh, and that that's like the, the single biggest thing. And then of course, just being relentless, uh, getting very grounded in what you, what you show and then just sticking to it. Uh, you know, when I first started growing fish people used to make jokes. Oh, you grow fish What do you do? You put them in the soil and plant them and you put the head up or the tail down when you plant it like all these dumb jokes I'm like, oh, please <laughs> So growing fish was considered ridiculous and tilapia. No one knew what a tilapia was But you know, you stick to your to your convictions and then eventually you know, if you aren't completely insane uh, You've grounded your conviction in something that is real and and you and you make it happen So uh, but having the right question I think is, is the first most important thing to, to look after. And then having conviction and believing in yourself to just go make it happen no matter what. You know, damn the torpedoes, as they say. <laughs> so, so that's, the, I don't know what other, there's lots more that I, things I've done being very controversial. You know, here's one funny analogy, you know, so trying to raise money. One time I was trying to get this one guy, Carl Icahn, who was a big venture capitalist back in the eighties. I was trying to get him an investment business and I could never get past his his secretaries and wall of people. So I went to his outside his house and I stuffed my business plan in his mailbox, which is not legal because you can't put mail in a mailbox. But saw so how the letter carrier didn't see it and it got into this house. And he he read it. I got a I got a note back about six weeks later saying, I love the I love the spirit. Nice try, but no thanks. <laughs> but at least I got through to him. So it's just crazy things like that, where you just you just do. Just to be unstoppable is something that I've kind of been and uh, gotten pretty far, and we got some pretty big challenges still in front of us. I mean, it's at times it's a bit of a burden to think. You know, know, people often feel uh, anxious that they don't know what to do. There's this huge immense problem, and and they just feel helpless. And and it's not much better if you think you have the answer, (laughs) because then you have to go do that. And then speaking to people and addressing it, and you say, "I, I. I think I have a way to reverse climate change and people look at you like where are the folks in the white coats and take this guy away he's crazy so so having a great idea can be almost as hard as not having any idea uh, but we're, we're getting there we're getting enough people who start to see the possibility of what we represent both from a business side but also from uh, from the environmental and the climate climate changing side and the people side I mean, there's a lot of things I didn't mention you know people count too in this right so a lot of the work, a lot of our physical infrastructure designed to employ persons with disabilities. So about a quarter of our workforce are people with disabilities that can do some of the, frankly, in agriculture, some of the work is pretty boring. You gotta be moving a plant from one hole to the next all day long, harvesting, packaging. And people who have a lower mental aptitude like that kind of consistency. So we've developed a broad range of tasks for sort of all different. We got folks with, with doctorates and people who will be effectively you know, a, a, a second grade aptitude all their life. So we have a full, and everyone we, you know, we, everyone works together. We have our Christmas parties, the whole gang's there. So it's very fun to incorporate, you know, it sounds silly, but to bring people into the whole mix and have that be part of the whole process for us. So that's, that's really fun and that's really rewarding. Even when the chips are down and things are hard, when you have a team of people that you're really building and, and I, I don't have enough time for the stories of, of, of the loyalty that we've had towards our, our company and our projects. It's just incredibly amazing. Uh, so there's another aspect to all of this. Is really, you know, I guess to I mean the, the more professional thing to say: build a team, a good team. Always be the dumbest person in the room. Hire as many smart people as you can find. So you're the dumbest, not the smartest person. And I and I I can clearly say that's I accomplish that regularly. But in any case, uh, the uh, that's those are the things that are, are fun. That are that are what I've looked at is. Trying to be unstoppable and having some really good questions that you that you work work to solve. I'm not so
1: at that, all. I think that's tremendous uh, that that you've worked out a way to incorporate people of varying abilities into your into your workforce. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah, there, there's so many things that we do, but that's that's like the crux of what we're about. Because it's about people, right? You know, it's about low cost food people can afford. It's about the people that help produce the product. Uh, there's a whole approach we do for sales and marketing that we can't get into, but it's about reaching people. Like I mentioned earlier when we were speaking that one of the things we do is we hire acting students as our core sales and marketing folks because they're great at expressing and engaging with people what we're about because we don't really sell and as an saying you don't sell your product you sell a story you don't sell the steak you sell the sizzle so it's about generating with people what you're about and that's a super important part of what we're trying to, is reach out to the community you obviously community inside the business, we have a community outside the business that we really try and engage with as well. So on many, many levels. We're working with what we often referred to as regenerative principles uh, of, of really regenerating relationships, regenerating our soil, regenerating our environment, generating us uh, as, as a culture and as a people and as, as humans. So it's about all of that all in one big, I say neat bundle, but it's actually a very big messy bundle. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's coming together, so.
1: jean thank you so much. We're out of time, but I, I love hearing what you're doing and uh, look forward to seeing if anyone, John had mentioned earlier, if anybody has any questions or comments regarding his uh, plan on, on the grass-fed fish, uh, you're welcome to send those over and submit to us.
0: Oddly enough, I, 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 I love critique because you know if, if I'm doing something stupid and someone tells me, I get to stop being stupid if I pay attention to them. So it's always nice to get pointing out when you're doing something that, that's not going to work. So it's very helpful.
1: It sounds so promising. You've been great. We're so glad that you were able to join us. And um, where can they find you?
0: Well, uh, there's obviously waterfieldfarms.com. There's our, our website. And uh, there's um friend LinkedIn. I'm, I'm John Reed uh, on LinkedIn. So it's pretty easy to find me that way as well. So in many ways in, these, in this connected world, it's hard to hide actually. But yeah, waterfieldfarms.com and and myself, John Reed, on the LinkedIn.
1: Thanks so much. This has been great.
0: All right. Great. Enjoy. Thank you again.
1: Hey, guys, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please share it with your friends and colleagues who also have to navigate this leadership stuff. As you can see, this project is about to be a mini masterclass in every episode. Best part? it's free. So if you like it, please do us a favor and take a screenshot, share it on social with the hashtag 100CEO. That's 100CEO. That way we can say thanks and share it in our stories. And finally, if you've got some insights you'd like to share and you're a CEO, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at 100CEOProject.com or on LinkedIn at the 100 ceo Project. Until next time, keep leading by example.